to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. In this episode, we get to explore a more academic approach to decision-making with the economist and author of a book called Optimally Irrational. The author is Lionel Page, a French-born economist who is currently working as the director of the Behavioral and Economic Science Cluster at the University of Queensland in Australia. Lionel, or as we agreed to call him during the interview, Lionel, is a sophisticated thinker who can not only tell you the time, but also how to mine for the minerals necessary to make the components in order to build the watch that will ultimately tell you the accurate time. (laughs) We know that most groovers are practitioners, so we decided to focus this episode on some of the cooler insights from his book. We also decided to break up our interview with him to mini grooming sessions rather than wait until the end of the interview. So from time to time, We'll be interrupting the original recording with some of our thoughts and ideas on about what he had to say. And one last thing, if you like what you hear, please share a quick rating or write a a short review for us. By doing so, you actually prompt the algorithms in the podcast substacks to alert others who are searching for behavioral science podcasts just to give our podcast a try. And since we have no advertisers and no sponsors, you won't be supporting the man. (laughs) No, No supporting the man when you write us a review. You'll just be helping other people learn about behavioral grooves. So thanks for listening and thanks for leaving us a quick rating or review. So let's start our discussion with Lionel with a speed round and whether he prefers coffee or tea. So having lived quite a bit in Britain, I love tea, uh, with milk, obviously, uh, which is not the way sometimes you do it in the US. Uh, but had, I must say, being in Australia, it's a coffee country and I'm a coffee person now. You Ooh, are. you've switched. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was, I was drinking coffee in England, but you know, uh, I'm not sure if you know, but the coffee culture is quite good in Australia. So, mm. yeah, the white flat <laughs> or uh, what? What? What do you? Cappuccino. You, Cappuccino. Okay. okay. All right. Good. There you go. Okay. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite musical artist or your favorite actor? That's an interesting question. I never asked myself this question. Um, maybe the musical artist. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Tim, Tim likes that answer. So there you <laughs> go. He, he's the musician in the group here. There you go. Does anyone come to mind? Yeah. I mean, uh, it could be like, uh, maybe not the kind of music you would think of, but I would be thinking somebody like Philip Glass or Hans Zimmer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Philip Glass would be a fantastic dinner guest. I would think he would be fantastic. I'll, I would be interested too, yeah, to, to discuss about the creation process, you know, the <laughs> I guess to create his pieces. Yeah. yeah. How does he do that? I think that would be amazing. Okay. Third speed round question. Overconfidence. Is it beneficial or not beneficial? Well, I mean, you know, as we may talk later, I mean, if it's there and it tends to be there more than underconfidence, it, it, there has to be a reason. And so I believe that often is going to be beneficial. That's why, you know, we, we when we're doing behavioral economics, we tend to focus on the negative. So we see there are costs. Uh, but if it's there, there, there are benefits, which may be hidden, but they are there and they help us maybe um, display more confidence to others and convince them that we're better than we are. Um, but obviously there will be costs. That is, uh, if I'm overconfident that I can uh, uh, swim in a, in a river with a mm. you know, strong current, I'm not going to convince the river with my overconfidence. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe too dangerous. Uh, but there would be, there would be benefits, definitely. 
Yeah, like I'm overconfident that my my uh, co-host will ask really smart questions, and I always, you know, it's one of those <laughs> and things. And it, it fails all the time. Oh my <laughs> gosh, it's every time I think he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Maybe and this then, time. And then he Maybe. does, and then he does. No, he does. He's, he's, <laughs> all right, all right, Lionel, last one. Last one yeah. here. Um, does homo economicus get a bad rap? So definitely, for good reasons, right? I mean, yeah, you know, in the book, uh, that I wrote of Timothy Rashwell, I, I, I kind of say, well, there are good reasons to criticize the Homo economicus. And we learn a lot from criticizing it and from trying to really test the ideas of the Homo economicus. Like we, we have a better, much better understanding of human psychology. But uh, so yes, it gets a bad rap for good reasons. At the same time, uh, you know, you can go too far into saying that was all nonsense and there's no interest in stuff. And, and actually some question you may ask is, is it, was the problem the, the kind of core assumptions about making trying, a person trying to make reasonable and good decisions, uh, the best decisions possible? Or was it some other assumptions such as mm, this person had amazing computational abilities mm. and perfect knowledge about the world, which obviously yeah. would agree that's not the case. So if you, should we abandon the idea that people try to make the best decisions for themselves? This is a core idea. Or should we instead saying, well, maybe people try to make the best decisions for themselves, but they don't have access to the whole information in the world in a transparent way. And, and maybe, you know, when they get access to this information, making this the best decisions is difficult. Like you have, you know, we, we experience that when you look at your insurance contract and you try to make sense whether it's a good contract for you or whether you should change to another insurance company. Well, it takes time, it takes effort. Uh, and then maybe we need to look into that to have a new version about uh, a smarter economicus in a way. Well, and, and and that's a lot of what you talk about in the in the book. So the, we're talking uh, with Lionel about his book, Optimally Irrational, The Good Reasons We Behave the Way We Do. Um, and I just want to start with the very first question is, how, how would you define rational and irrational behaviors? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, 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 and you know, one in a way, one ironic aspect of the book is that I end the book with a chapter on what is rationally right. Exactly. Yeah, that right, was like, right. we had to wait till the end. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> thought you would start the book that way, but no. Yeah. So right. we, we start saying, um, what is what is rationality? It's basic understanding that people are rational if they are making reasonable decisions that they agree with. So, you know, if you tell them, wait a minute, you know, you, you said you wanted to buy some bread in the shop and you come back with, you know, some chocolate bars. And where is the bread? So, like, you know, that's, there's a problem here. Like, and people say, oh my God, yeah, oh, I made a mistake. So that's would be rational. But then at the end of the book, we see, I, I kind of delve into what is rationality and, and, and how economists think about it. And that's a difficulty here is that often in science, you know, science are built on kind of commonly agreed understanding, or at least the, the impression that we commonly understand some notion. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the impression is the key part there, right? Yes. yes. If you were to do statistics, you know, you could think, what is the probability? Well, that's a very complex question. But, you know, most statisticians don't ask themselves this question every day. And in mathematics, in plenty of other sciences, you have the same, uh, the same thing. So rationality is a bit the same thing. That is, you would go to a course in economics and you'd have like a, some definition of rationality and, and you know, it's, it's something you don't have to question. But the funny thing is that if you go to different courses in economics, then you would see that actually you have different definitions of rationality. Some are mm -hmm. very restrictive. So you you go you do consumer uh, theory, like uh, which is what you start with in economics, and, and people will tell you rationality is just that people are able to make decisions. So in every situation, when you face two choices, you are able to tell us which choice you prefer. Okay. 
Like technically, that's for completeness of preferences. That there is no situation where you would say, I don't know. So that's the first assumption. And then the second assumption is that you have some kind of minimal consistency, which is that you know, if you tell me that you prefer chocolate to vanilla and vanilla to a banana in terms of, let's say, let's say ice cream taste. Well, if you prefer chocolate to vanilla and vanilla to banana, then you should prefer chocolate to banana. Okay, And, and that kind of thing, well, that's a reasonable assumption. Because if you, if you tell me you prefer chocolate to vanilla and vanilla to banana, but banana to chocolate, then it's a kind of cycle. It's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. So with the huge start economics and people uh, in the course, we say that the two assumptions, you have rational preferences if you follow these two assumptions. But then you would go to other areas of economics and then you would have additional assumptions which are added to rationality. So, Mr. Houlihan, what do you think? What do you think about rationality and kind of sounds a lot like consistency of preferences? Uh. <laughs> At least that's what I'm hearing. That is, that is a key part of it. I think you kind of nailed that, that rationality sounds a lot like consistency. We oftentimes think about rationality as having, uh, you know, the things about um, we a rational choice is made when we have a lot of options, a rational choice is when we've considered all the options, right? Those are, and the, and the, and the third sort of tenet of rationality is that we're making it in our own best self-interest. It, it leads to the best outcome for us as as we think about rationality. And what I'm hearing being said here, and which is an interesting thought, it's that it's no, that's this, it's if it follows a logical process. If A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A therefore must be bigger than C. Right. C can never right. be bigger larger than, than A. A. Right. <laughs> but but that's not and, and what's interesting, I think, is Kahneman and Tversky, this was some of their original research that kind of said, hey, you pick A here and you pick B and then you pick B over that. So you should pick, you know, A over C if you, anyway, it it didn't fit to this logical component and and this preferences. So, right. Well, I, I think about sort of my logical preferences on driving. Like we could say, I could say that when I get in the car to drive, my rational response is to get from point A to point B as quickly as I can, right? To reduce the amount of time on the road. There's all kinds of good rational reasons and um, and that that all that makes sense. And that would certainly apply when I'm driving to work, probably. If I'm commuting in my automobile, then there's there's that. But what if I'm just like driving to the park with my partner, you know, what if it's Saturday? What if I don't want to take the, the freeway? What if I want to take city streets? The utility that comes from that is going to be different. And and I think in, from an economic perspective, we might say that that's like uh, irrational. No. And Lionel could argue that's okay. Yeah. Right? Th- this is part of the, what he's saying is that that is okay that we have different senses of utility and rationality and inconsistency is okay. So let's pick up the conversation with Lionel describing the importance of how we define a field of study or discipline of work. The um, one caveat of the success of, of a discipline is that often, you know, it's it's the way it's described, the way people talk about it become a bit simplistic. And the the way the narrative about behavioral economics having built itself against it, the old standard homo economicus, et cetera, has been that um, uh, 
be able to finish. We, we show that people are irrational. So I start the book by showing that something which seems strange in the same way as like behavior can seem strange, but some things which can seem strange in nature, they may have like very interesting explanations as there are very good reasons behind it. But I wanted to, to start with that to say, well, it's not because you, you find something very strange and hard to explain that you should stop there and say, well, you know, here that it, it, often you can find very interesting and convincing underlying reasons for what this is happening. Is it an overlooked fact um, from your perspective? You kind of talked a little bit at the beginning about saying, you know, you are tired of trying to explain behavioral op- economics as looking at the mistakes we make and kind of integrating it, almost like Richard Thaler when he talks about wanting to have behavioral economics just become economics right. at, at some point, right? Yeah, so I think you're totally right. That, so we have all these results on behavioral economics, a very interesting one. And I think people, that's also the way science works, you know, like attribution in science is uh, is not perfect. And so when you have a very successful author or school, you know, the, the patterns of citation, the way people citations works, that people are going just going through it. And so, you know, the, ne- the previous generation, in fact, the generation of Kahneman Gursky, certainly knows what was before, and, you know, they don't try to mask it. But the next generation starts citing Kahneman Gursky, and then the following generation says things that, you know, things started there. And I'm not saying that to lower the contribution of Kahneman Gursky, like, which was huge, but as you say, I think they were on the shoulders of giants, on, on many others. And, and, and one of the big things when you look at the history of science is that their contribution in particular, the prospect theory, the prospect theory paper of 79, which is uh, one of the most cited papers in economics. It, not everything is new there. I, I think what they do is that they, they clearly put new ideas in it, but they also aggregate a lot of ideas which were existing before. And I think it's valuable to as perspective on the history of the field. I guess my question is, why do you think people really don't know what we want? Why, why is it that that we aren't so good at actually actually saying this is actually what I want. Well, that's a huge question. I think there's <laughs> I was going to say that's like we've, and we uh, and we, we only we, have a five minutes here. Okay. <laughs> I, I think look, I, I can give you several reasons. One reason why we don't know what we want is that the the assumption that what we call the completeness axiom, the idea that whenever I give you two options, you would be able to tell me which one you pre- you, you prefer is, you know, the funny thing is that when you, would, you would be a student doing Economics 101 in the first year of undergrad, and the lecturer would say, that's it, you know, completeness, obviously, you know, people are able to make decisions. Next. As if it's a true <laughs> assumption. Uh-huh. It is an incredibly strong assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it says is that you go in a supermarket, like, you know, you come with me to the supermarket, and I bring two trolleys. Well, I've randomly taken things in the supermarket and put them into trolleys. And, and let's say you can see what's in the trolley. So, you know, you, you can see every item in the trolley. Uh, and I can tell you, I have a list of the items in both trolleys. And it says, which one do you want? And right away, you'll be able to say, okay, toothbrush, butter, you know, washing liquid, uh, chocolate. I want this one instead of this one when you have, I don't know, bread and a cake and ice cream, etc. 
Well, that's wrong right there. Yeah, just yeah. FYI, you can never pick a trolley that that has doesn't have ice cream. Always pick have ice one, cream. Always pick ice cream. So okay, I'm sorry. Just, you could have ice cream in both, right? Different okay, okay. Okay. I, I just make it, right. making a, a, a okay. an inside okay. joke there. So sorry. So, obviously, it's a very very strong assumption. There's so much information that is relevant for your decision that you would have to consider that it's it's unrealistic to assume that there is no cost into processing this information. And a very ironic or funny aspect to it is that when you look at the main quoted textbook in economics, the one which would be used in, you know, by the lecturers, uh, it says, well, we assume completeness, you know, and if you have completeness and, and transitivity, then you have rational preferences. Or you look at two paragraphs below and it says, oh, you know, we shouldn't underestimate how strong this assumption is because... <laughs> Uh, it means that you have meditated all your choices. So it's only valid for choices that you have like already carefully, all the work has been done. And in the same way, our subjective satisfaction system can be designed to trick us in that way. So for us to believe that I'm going to be very happy if I reach this goal. Uh, but once I reach it, you know, the subjective satisfaction system is not going to reward us all the time for, you know, you wake up in the morning and says, I've got this great job. I don't need to do anything else. No, it, it's designed to for you to, to move to the next step. And so we have what's uh, Kahneman called the, the focusing illusion. That is, you focus on something, you think, oh, that's what I need to be happy. You know, I really need this big house. I need, really need this. I'm, I want to buy, let's say, a boat or whatever. Whatever your dream is, you know, I want to do this massive trip in Tibet and that will make me very happy. And, and you do it. And then you say, okay, well, that's great. But, you know, you need to move on. Okay, so completeness. This is a this is a big deal. Let's. I think we should also talk about uh, the focusing illusion and anchoring okay. just a little bit. But let's start with just completeness because this idea that completeness helps us when it comes to finding missing points. Mm. Right. It's sort of like the manage, management by exception. Right. That that the manager is looking for exceptions in the report, not so much the general quality of the report overall. Um, but but let, let me get back to completeness for just a second. So we know that completeness comes from like for counting one, two, three, five. It's like <gasps> wait. <laughs> that's not how that works. That's not how that works. We need four in there. Something was missing. And and this actually, you know, uh, works well for us, right? Um, and I, I think that this connects to Kahneman when he referred to the what you see is all there is heuristic. Right? Why <laughs> Right, right. That we have, we are good at, at sort of examining, uh, you know, quickly seeing things and going, oh yeah, quickly, that's complete or that's not. I think this this piece that uh, what we know is that humans like completeness. We, we like this yes. element. It's the Zagarnik effect, right? This idea that we are constantly Wrap looking for the, the, the piece to, we need that closure. We, we want that piece. We want to fill in the missing gaps. It's the one, two, three, five, wait, we, neft up, we, we, we don't like the four being left out. We need to mm -hmm. fill that in. We like that aspect of it. And I think it's really important when we think about all of that is, okay, so the implications of that can be, they, they get us sometimes into trouble when we have an illusion of completeness. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the problem is that when we get presented with something that we're not familiar with, it it might look complete when it's not. Right. Which goes to the focusing illusion. 
or this anchoring effect, right? This idea that our brains fill in some of these things, right? That that we are not fully aware of and make it seem like, oh, this is the truth. Yeah, I, I love the study that Kahneman and Tversky did when they asked people, uh, when they showed them a, a card that, that had one times two, times three, times four, times five, times six, times seven, times eight, that was one group of people. And they showed them the card, but they didn't give them enough time to actually solve the problem, to do the multiplication that would solve the problem. They just, they just you, you get to ch- a, a quick look at it, and then, you, then you're asked to give an answer. A separate group of people, they got something different, right? Okay. Yeah. So they got the card that was just reversed. Eight times seven times six times five times four times three times two times one. So now, Tim, what, what is the answer to that one? <laughs> You know me and my tremendous math skills. Of course, I would know the answer directly. So what again, to to that point, what Kahneman and Tversky found is that for the first, when it started at one times two times three, all the way up to eight, the median estimate was 512. Okay. Okay. However, when the sequence was reversed, starting at eight times seven times six, then the median estimate was 2,250. Okay, let's just stop right there for a second. That is a huge difference. That's not a small difference. That's a huge difference. The difference between 512 and 2,250 is dramatic. It's the same amount of numbers. It's exactly the same amount of, of numbers. It's just a different sequence. The focus is different. Rather than starting with one, it starts with eight. Right. And, and the idea is that since math and multiplication, they are the exact same number. And you know what's really interesting? Well, not really interesting, but one of the interesting facts is we are, no matter what, those estimates are well below what the reality <laughs> right. of the correct answer is. Which is? Which, which 40, what's the correct? 40,320. Regardless of if you start with one or start with eight. It, oh, it doesn't it, matter? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. If you start with one or you start with eight, you still get 40,320. Multiplication is, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter if you multiply two times three or three times two. It gives you the same answer, Tim. So in both of these situations, our brain processing just isn't consistent, right? And that's okay. I think that, that both Lionel and, of course, Kahneman and Tversky's work points to the fact that that's okay. And it's, it's important for us to just to know that when we focus... And that when we, when we get anchored, that we're possibly avoiding other things, that we're not taking other things into consideration. Yeah, losing sight of that bigger picture of choices. So yeah. let's pick up the story with Lionel talking about the hedonic treadmill, happiness, and how happiness is connected to loss aversion. Well, you can think of the of our subjective satisfaction system. Uh, you know, there's a an old cartoon of somebody on a, on a donkey with a carrot in front of the donkey and a stick behind, right? And yeah. that's to move the donkey. Uh, this is the carrot is moving with the donkey, right? So uh, as the donkey moves forward, the carrot moves forward. And, and in the same way, our process of happiness uh, uh, follows the same way. So we, we see happiness ahead, right? And so we want to move ahead. But as we reach closer to these goals, for us to continue further, well, the goal for happiness has also to, to kind of continue ahead. And, and in psychology, I'm sure you're, you, you, you know this term, it's called the um, treadmill uh, effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so running after happiness is like running over a treadmill. 
It's like, as you run, you know, sometimes you get closer to the end of the treadmill, but like, you know, because of the treadmill continues to, to, to turn, you end up not eventually, you know, catching happiness. It's like the horizon, which keeps moving ahead as you get closer to it. Yeah. And it is by design. It is by design. Yeah. The happiness thing, I think, is really interesting because you actually have been working on, uh, we, we talked a little bit about before we we started a recording, about the relationship between happiness and loss aversion. Yes. Could you share some of the work that you're working on right now? Yes, I can. So, um, part of, you know, big part of the book is to say a lot of these biases sometimes are not biases. In this way, sometimes are very good solutions to the problem we face. And whenever you see that, a behavioral pattern which is always present or mostly present in human psychology. You have to ask, why is it there? Mm. So if we think about the subjective satisfaction system with uh, this A-shaped function, the first question is, why would you, would you have such a such an A-shape? Why would you have a reference point? Why would you care about gains and losses relative to a reference point? And so the first constraint is that however satisfaction is kind of coded in the brain, like, you know, in cognitive neuroscience, we tend to think that um, dopaminergic neurons, which are these neurons we release, uh, release dopamine, are the, the things which kind of gives this reward signal. So, you know, you have part in the brain with these neurons when you go in the morning and you, and you drink a good orange juice and, you know, it feels, feels good. That's it. Like the neurons are firing good, good information. So, but you have a limited number of these neurons. So you can think that, uh, you know, there's a kind of limit that your brain can tell you is like good. The, the other constraint you have is that our perceptual system is, is not perfect. So we make kind of mistakes. And, and, and one intuitive thing is that if I give you two pens of similar weight and I ask you which one is the heaviest, you wouldn't be really able to be like, oh, I'm not sure. And so you may choose randomly. And, and similarly, if I give you two things which are of similar kind of values, you may ask you which one you prefer. You may like, oh, I'm not sure. I both are like, pretty good, right? I'll give you two pieces of chocolate, some different flavor. Which one do you, do you prefer? Oh, they're different, but they feel pretty good. So, so you may once again choose randomly, but choosing randomly is not ideal. So what it means is that to, to, to have, to be, to have this able to, dis, this ability to discriminate, you should have a steeper utility function. That is your, between small differences, you should perceive differences in values, uh, uh for these small differences. But because you have this boundaries of minimum happiness and, and maximum happiness. You can't, you can't have a steep perception everywhere. So I need to, you need to, to nature needs to allocate this perception, this sharpness of perception where it matters. And so where it matters is going to be typically where you, the kind of decisions you're making usually, right? And so if you think in terms of money, the kind of decisions you're used to is around what you have. And if you gain, you know, you, you should care about gains because there are deviations with what, where you are now. And you should care about losses because those are deviations from where you are now. So that should be steep around where you are. You should be like, be very sensitive to do a bit better than now, do a bit worse than now. So you should have this A-shape as an optimal solution, as, a, as an optimal perceptual system, which, which is just more discriminating where it matters. Now, what, what you don't have in this, in this, in this setting is why would you have loss aversion? And so what we should have, I'm working on that work with my colleague Greg Kubitz, who is also working here in Brisbane. And we, we go a step further and say, wait a minute, you know, like, how does this perceptual system kind of perfectly adapt to the distribution of situations you're facing? You know, like when you're facing always the same situation, maybe, you know, you have this experience about the type of monetary decisions you're making uh, around what you have now. So that's, that's fine. 
But if I was to, in many situations, you have to make decisions about situations which are kind of not exactly around what you have now, not the status quo. Okay, so Tim, I think what is interesting here is that we're not programmed to be really sensitive to small differences um, in those similar things, right? And this is kind of a, this is a challenge, isn't it? It's huge. I mean, we talk about how, um, you know, we as humans are percentage wise and absolute foolish. (laughs) Uh, We've talked about that multiple times. (laughs) The idea of, you know, going to traveling across town to save $50 on a, on a, you know, a TV. stereo TV or something, but, you know, not traveling that same distance to save a thousand dollars on a car. Right. You know, because of the the size difference is proportional. And so, yeah, uh, again, it's that, that we can, we can easily tell the difference between one pound and two pounds, but we can't tell the difference between lifting 51 pounds and 52 pounds, right? Because the, the one and two pound difference is a hundred percent different. But the 51 pounds and 52 52 pounds, those are 2% different, right? Yeah. If I'm doing my math right. (laughs) You are. You're good at math. There you go. And and at the same time, Lionel argues that we are not very sensitive to small differences in similar things, like two different chocolates. Now, it's always cool to hear someone with a French accent saying the word chocolat. (laughs) That's true. But it is kind of a, it's sort of a misfire, isn't it, of of the human condition that part of our DNA does not pay, have sort of a hypersensitivity to small differences in small things. In similar similar things. In similar things. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's small and similar. And that's, yeah, like... Why shouldn't we be able to tell the difference between 70% dark chocolate and 90% dark chocolate? You know? Right. And which always makes me really interesting because I am horrible at that, particularly in taste or sound. Like you can tell sound differences where I can't, right? You can go, oh, that's you know, off on this pitch or that. And I'm like going, I don't know, it all sounds the same to me, right? And but but that's training. That's that's all right. That's not I would consider you an average consumer of music. You know, I am just average. That's for well, sure. Sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean it that way. No, I'm okay with being average. That's okay. I, I okay. take pride in being average. You know, there you go. But why not? Like, why don't we? Like, I spent. You brought up food. Yeah. Why? Why don't we? Why don't most people, when we taste that glass of wine, go, "Oh, there's notes of leather and and <laughs> and, and lilac and leather and lace." I thought you were going for. Why? Why don't we? taste all that when that would be beneficial to our our DNA, to well, our but evolution. Well, w- but would it? I mean, it, what evolutionary purpose does that serve, right? Is there a difference? There's a difference in being able to taste something that is sour or different and, and differences in understanding, hey, this has a high caloric, you know, it, it's savory, mm-hmm. so it has a lot of fat and different things, or it's sweet, so it's, you know, higher in, in calories, which are evolutionary good. But if a banana, you know, tastes a little bit different than another banana, do I really care from an evolutionary perspective? Maybe that's know. it. Yeah. Hey. Let's, let's also talk about motivations and how motivations are so simple that they, there's just, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, no, I got that no. wrong. Yeah. Motivations are complex, right? Yeah. Yes. But, they're, but they're largely based on our expectations of the future. Yeah, which kind of takes me back to Roy Baumeister when he talked about anticipated regret. 
as being one of the biggest motivational factors in our lives, that we think about what might we do and how is that going to affect us in the future, that that ends up becoming a determinant in our motivation. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting piece. And and Lionel talks about when we think about making decisions, we can easily separate them into a bunch of different categories, like monetary decisions versus non-monetary decisions or categories, right? For instance, it's easy to imagine getting a job is a monetary decision. I need money to pay um, for my rent and to buy food and to have that, you know, wonderful car that we drive and all those things, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but Lionel argues that we can have many motivations in our decision-making and also get a job uh, for connecting to people socially or um, for simple purpose of just doing work. And it's not always that clear which part of our motivation is leading uh, the way in our decisions and which is lagging. And Lionel uses the illustration of someone living in Philadelphia who decides to set up a restaurant for the love of the business and to make money. And Uh Lionel shows us how all of the goals associated with setting up the business are future-oriented. They're based on anticipated utility. And this feature of anticipated utility? Well, it's a fundamental design feature for humans. Let's hear Lionel tell us about that. So nature is not able to uh, design us with like, you know, hardwired answers to this question. But nature, in a way, nature can see through us. So we we have all, you know, if I live in Philadelphia and I want to set up a restaurant, I have my personal experience about what is the city, what are the opportunities, etc. So I can set a goal to myself. And maybe by setting a goal, nature can retrieve this information and says, oh, you set this goal, so now you need to do it. You know, I want to set a restaurant, but who cares about monetary success? Well, we will anticipate that if we're too ambitious, we're going to be disappointed. We may be disappointed. But at the same time, nature can induce us to be more ambitious by setting in our um, reward system what's called anticipated utility. So now, mm. as I'm wondering whether I could be successful with my restaurants, if I, as I entertain the possibility that I could be successful, then I would like this idea. I was like, I imagine myself having a successful restaurant. I would like to believe it's possible. And if I if I look at the evidence in front of me, I think, I think I can make it. I think these things can be successful. I will feel good about it. But nothing has happened. I may not have started the restaurant, but I just told somebody to say, what? Right. I'm going to launch a restaurant. I, I feel really great about this stuff. So this anticipatory utility is, is a kind of trick that nature uses to compensate for the fact that you know, if we have too high aspirations, we, we may be disappointed. So that's the first solution. The, the first additional pieces you need to work when, you know, your subjective satisfaction system cannot integrate a priori or cannot calibrate without the contextual information that you have. So there is a risk of providing anticipatory utility at the time where people just have expectations that people will form way too optimistic expectations. And what we show is that there is a kind of a, a key problem your satisfaction system has to face is that you cannot solve the two problems together. You cannot have this kind of A-shaped utility function and anticipatory utility and have that people are never pessimistic or they are never, and they are never optimistic, that people always pick the right stuff. And we show that this cannot be done. And so it decreases the problem of potentially you being over-optimistic. And so what you have is that the, the perfect system is a system when you have anticipatory utility and an S-shape we, which is distorted and distorted in a way which displays the subversion. And that 
allows this system to make sure you make the right decision. So when you get information, you try to reach what you can do in the best way possible. But once you've set this goal, you need to reach it. That mm. is, if you don't reach this goal, you'll feel bad about it. Okay. So that prevents you also to, to set high goals which are too high, because if you set a goal which is too high, then failing to, to reach it, you'll have more disappointment. Okay, so this is this whole idea of anticipated utility and happiness being so deeply intertwined is really important, right? And it goes back to Kahneman and Tversky. It always goes back to Kahneman and Tversky. <laughs> Doesn't it? Oh yeah, always. And here we are talking about economics, and yet it goes back to a psychologist yeah. who, who looked at, at the economic model and said, wait a minute, there's not, it's not always rational to think that gaining $100 is the same as losing $100, right. even though an economic theory would say that it is. So, so the S-shaped utility function, this is prospect theory. It is. This is, this, is, this is it. So when Lionel talks about S-shaped utility, and, and by the way, in, in the recording, it might sound like he's saying A-shaped or H-shaped. It's S-shaped. So just want to make sure that everyone understands that. But it focuses on how we weigh losses larger than gains of the same value. And it delves into the negative utility of where things that were previous, you know, that we were previously looking at always having positive utility curves. So anticipated utility now says, okay, let's let's consider what we might get from this and base our expected utility. There's something that happens out in the future as how much value it's going to have to us right now. Which goes back to the very beginning when we were talking about rationality, right? And this idea <laughs> yes. that Lionel is saying that people aren't always going to pick the right stuff because of this S-curve, that rational option flows directly from A is better than B, B is better than C, uh, and therefore A is better than C. But we don't always make our decisions that way because of this S-shaped curve and this future perspective that we're taking. So starting a restaurant as we talked about earlier, is a complex set of motivations, some yeah. monetary, some non-monetary, and we have expectations around all of those, right? Fun, right. rewarding, difficult, successful, all of those play into it. And they all have an S-shaped utility, which makes this very complex. Right. And at which I'm glad that people like Lionel are studying it. Because I mean, <laughs> <laughs> way beyond my brain power, that's for damn sure. That's right. So he he did make this point that anticipated utility combined with loss aversion become this extremely powerful motivational combination because the anticipated utility gets us excited about how cool the future could be if we achieve these certain goals. But the loss aversion keeps us from working so hard that we don't fail at the goals that we've set. So there's this really lovely combination here of uh, the anticipated utility gets us excited. Oh yeah, I can imagine this really cool future. And then when we start moving in that direction, or Ayelet Fishbach might say we're we're goal striving after we've set the goal, that now we start thinking about, I don't want to lose. I don't want to mm. fail. So that sense of that risk or possible loss is what keeps us focused and engaged in achieving the goals that we set out to do. Right. So so consider this example of taking out a mortgage, right? 
Say that two banks are offering the same interest rate and closing costs, and one of them is my bank. If I have a good relationship with my bank, my anticipated utility with the mortgage from my bank will be higher than if I have a poor relationship with my bank. So therefore, I am motivated to continue working with people I think are trustworthy, and my anticipated utility will be high for future dealings. Yeah. I will also be more motivated to make my payments on time with my bank because I don't want the risk of reputational loss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, our behaviors are a mix of this complex interweaving of uh, a, the number of different factors that are going into this as well as the S-shaped curve and as well as anticipated you know, uh, utility, et cetera. So, yeah, I just want to make a note because he did talk about happiness a little bit and sort of happiness is like the actual utility, right? That's the, that's that not the anticipated utility, but the actual utility that comes from a whole variety of things. Like we get it from novelty and familiarity. <gasps> Wait, those are different, Tim. How does that happen? How, how, how do we get happiness from novelty, but also from familiarity? We get it from resting and exerting effort, right? What? We get it from challenging experiences and experiences that are easy. No, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> Learning new ideas and applying new ideas. <gasps> oh my gosh, I'm shaking. So, <laughs> so what you're saying, Tim? And I think what Lionel's saying is that humans are complex, which makes finding your groove challenging. I think you actually said that very nicely. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. I don't know. I wonder where yeah. I got that idea. Yeah, I, who knows? Okay, so big lessons uh, that, that come from this part of the discussion. Big lesson number one. Our human systems have a lots of benefits in them. They're not just all muddy and soft like psychologists in the 1960s said. <laughs> they were, they have some good elements. However, however, nature, our DNA, and the ways that we describe perfect rationality as economists would have not always been in sync. And so behavioral economics is trying to remedy that. They're trying to bring those two together. Yeah. I would also say that there's the second big lesson is that intentionality makes a positive difference, right? Being intentional in our decisions. Like once you become aware of the way our decisions are not so consistent, then you can be more intentional about how you want to live your life. Uh, I love that. Yes. Intentionality is important. Okay. Well, I think that that wraps up our discussion with Lionel Page, and we want to thank him for being a guest, and we hope that you've enjoyed our more academic discussion in this episode. (laughs) Behavioral science is a journey, and we hope you are enjoying the journey on behavioral grooves. And we hope that some of what Lionel shared with you in this episode will help you this week as you go out and find your groove. 